The following podcast is intended for mature audiences and may contain strong language, adult themes, and frank sexual content. This is the Heart of Jack's podcast. Celery, soccer, and solo sex, character limitations, and getting back to basics. I'm Paul Rosenberg, and this is episode 22 of the Heart of Jack's podcast. Brought to you by me, and made possible by listeners like you, patrons through Patreon. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com slash theheartofjacks. If you had to choose, would you rather eat celery or vegetables? And can you believe that some people actually prefer eating celery rather than real vegetables? I know, a lot of people just get so hungry that they have to settle for celery over and over. And yeah, it can be juicy and cool and even kind of addictive with a jar of peanut butter. But don't these celery lovers ever want to eat a bunch of real vegetables sometimes? And another thing, I understand that there are people who would rather see or play soccer than sports. I mean, normal people like sports, but soccer lovers? Aren't they kind of weird? I mean, why settle for soccer when there's real sports? One more. Justin Miller, who is a social psychologist, sex researcher, author, and Kinsey Institute research fellow, tweeted this. If you had to give up sex or masturbation for one month, which would you choose? Now, I really like Justin Miller. He's smart, sex positive, he's got a fantastic sex and psychology podcast and blog, but this tweet, which, let's be honest, was an ad for a sex toy, demonstrates how cultural biases around sex are entrenched in our language, even among smart sex researchers contributing to a sex-positive world. I replied to his tweet, Many sex therapists and researchers don't regularly imply that masturbation is something other than sex. It's unfortunate that someone as smart, appealing, and respected as you is amplifying this common shorthand, implying that the most prevalent sex act of our species isn't sex. Miller responded, I understand your point, but also recognize that different people define sex and masturbation in drastically different ways. So I wouldn't presume there's just one right-slash-correct-slash-valid way to talk about them that transcends context. I left it there. Having the last word is a pointlessly macho exercise, in my opinion, and Twitter arguments don't really convince anyone, do they? I did not point out that the shorthand of sex or masturbation did literally presume. It uses the language norm that having sex with means fucking or at the very least, that masturbation is not sex. The implication feeds the narrative that sex with a partner is real sex, to the extent that one can simply refer to having sex, and that masturbation is a completely different human phenomenon. You know, there are thousands of people on lifetime sex offender registries because they were caught masturbating in public. If masturbation isn't sex, shouldn't they be on registries for something other than sex? Look, I'm not trying to make Justin Miller out to be a bad guy here. He's very much one of the good people on the side of the sex-positive angels. What I'm ranting on about here is that the words we use have meaning, and that everyday language carries our common narratives along with them. I often like to point to endemic cultural shame about sex, and the fact that it is all-pervasive from birth to death just renders it invisible to us. We stop interrogating our fundamental biases because they're all wrapped up in everyday language and everyday customs. Too often, we don't really think about masturbation as being inside the big tent of human sexuality, so much as we imagine it in another tent entirely. There's a belief, either rooted in or expressed by our common vernacular, that masturbation is something else. I'm here to tell you that this is an illusion. It's a social construct one of countless other social constructs that are not objectively real or true, except insofar as we believe in them. We don't have to believe in them. Seeing constructs for what they are doesn't mean we have to abandon them, but it does show us that we do have choice to hold on to them or let them go. 
When we look at the recent evolution of language away from gender bias, like referring to pregnant people rather than pregnant women, or using they-them pronouns when we don't know a person, we can see that there exists a willingness to expand our language in such a way as to allow people and things to be as they are rather than perpetuate assumptions. I think we can evolve in our approach to masturbation as well, which is, again, the most prevalent sex act of our species, and stop segregating it from all the sex humans have in our infinite exploration of pleasure and connection and meaning and identity. Sex is a huge part of human life, and masturbation is a huge part of sex. Celery is vegetables. Soccer is sports. Masturbation is sex. I will continue to call out when anybody makes the differentiation between sex or masturbation, even for the sake of shortening a Twitter ad, because I see value in claiming the value of the sex we are actually having. My latest conversation with Dr. Eric Sprankle is next. I'm very happy to welcome back Dr. Eric Sprankle. Dr. Sprankle is an associate professor of clinical psychology and co-director of the Sexuality Studies Program at Minnesota State University, Mankato. He is also a licensed clinical psychologist and an ASEX certified sex therapist affiliated with the Minnesota Sexual Health Institute. He leads the sexual health research team at Minnesota State, examining the intersections of sexuality and stigma, and has published articles on the effects of sexually explicit material, older adult sexuality, and sex worker affirmative therapy. In his downtime, Dr. Sprankle lives a reclusive lifestyle with his three tabbies, trying to achieve a lifelong goal of becoming the male equivalent of a crazy cat lady. Dr. Sprankle, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me again. So we're going to talk about what sex is. And I, I want to start with Bill Clinton, which may be super cliche, but I'm going to do it anyway. He spoke these 11 words in 1998. He said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. And uh, as the evidence mounted of him actually receiving the fateful blowjob from that woman, Clinton's legal argument, and it was a legal argument, was that he denied that he had ever contacted Lewinsky's, quote, genitalia, anus, groin, breast, inner thigh, or buttocks, close quote, and effectively claimed that the agreed-upon definition of sexual relations included giving oral sex, but excluded receiving oral sex. It's just so fucking legalistic. <laughs> and it, it goes to this question, not only of what sex is, but who decides what it is and why? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's certainly true. And I, I think when I, I touch upon this a little bit in some of my classes, primarily actually with when we talk about sexual consent versus coercion, that I, I try to focus those conversations on ethics and ethical behavior as opposed to legal definitions of what constitutes like sexual assault uh, or rape. Right. Because, you know, you can't trust the legal system and the government to be sexually healthy and sex positive and to have a thorough understanding of what even sexuality is and what can it can and entail. Mm -hmm. So the legal side of sexuality is either over pathologizing things or is completely missing the point altogether and like even under pathologizing things. So I think that the, the, the whole Clinton Lewinsky thing in the 90s was a good example of that of just trying to use legalese as a way to kind of rationalize behavior, justify an argument, something like that. And it could fit based on a legal definition of whatever it is, but for more of a the behavioral science, uh, you know, psychological perspective of sexuality, the legal system is, is not a good guide for sexual behavior. No shit. <laughs> <laughs> Or many other things, really. Right, right. So I want to step back here. When you talk about using ethical standards, uh, mm -hmm. people get confused by the term ethics, about right. just what ethics means, what it means to have an ethical code, a code of conduct for oneself. What is? Can, can you define for me what you mean by ethics? Kind of, um, because it, ethics are subjective. They, they change with time and they differ between yes. cultures. And so there is relativity there. And people balk at that idea. They want objectivity in like an ethical system. And, that, and that's a big argument within religion of like, God is the objective authority of what is right and wrong, what is moral, immoral, what is ethical and unethical. And if you don't have God in your life, then everything is relative and everything is subjective. 
And that's the part where I actually agree with religious folks. It's like, yeah, things are uh, subjective and it is relative. And we just base our understanding of each other, our relations with one another, our understanding of the world on all the information that we have in that moment of time in our little corner of this universe. And that is going to change over time as we learn more things about what it means to be a decent, ethical human being and how we relate uh, to one another. So I don't have a definition of it. It's just kind of based on our current understanding of how, I guess, we want to be treated. I mean, it's kind of like the golden rule kind of thing. And that's mm-hmm. universal. That's not necessarily, you know, tied to any like a religious belief. So that is kind of like a grounding principle. And then just our understanding of what certain behaviors can have on an impact of somebody like that. We know the impact of sexual assault and the traumatic impact that it can have on individuals. And so that can start making us think of like, well, Maybe consent is part of ethical practice of sexual relating to one another, because without consent, it has all these negative impacts on the person being victimized. And so maybe we have an ethical system around that. But that requires an, uh, you know, the slow accumulation of knowledge about particular uh, sexual acts that lead to an ethical code. And that is going to change over time. And that's going to differ from culture to culture. Sure. And, and as we learn more about ourselves and about sexuality and about different cultures. Right, for sure. And it would be very arrogant to believe that we have it all figured out right now in 2021 of what it means to be an ethical human being. That's going to change in 100 years. Uh, we'll look, people will look back to 2021 and think that we are, you know, this ridiculously sadistic and violent uh, group of uh, people that they could barely associate that we're even the same species. Uh, mm-hmm. More likely, you know, that'll, that'll keep happening. That's how we look at previous generations. Like, how could they think like this was okay behavior to do? Um, it's constantly evolving. And yet we've got this idea that goes back forever, that there is absolute truth, there is absolute uh, moral truth, Mm -hmm. um, and that we've got like these books that say, this is right, this is wrong, and we're following these laws, and they're immutable, when actually all of these things are evolving. Absolutely. And I think just the very definition of sex and what we consider sexual behavior and and not goes perfectly along with that, too. It changes with time. It differs between cultures. Um, And then we really just have to think, like, from my perspective, what I how I approach this topic is like, how is this definition relevant to how it's being used in this specific context? Mm. And so that definition of sex will be different depending on these contexts. And so I don't have a universal definition of what sexual ethics are, what sex is, what sexual health is, none of this, because it's very dependent on the situation and the context in which it's being used. So uh, how would you, uh, in, in a more general way, then define what sex is? Uh, and, and I mean, sexual activity. Yeah. So this is always an interesting question that I I, I pose to my students um, in my lower level undergrad uh, sexual health class. And it's like one of the first modules, just introducing them to the concept of sexual health. And the whole point of the class and all my classes on sexuality is just to have them think differently about sex on the last day of class than they did coming into the uh, into the semester. To think broader about sex, to remove some egocentrism out of sexuality that's almost inherent and in that sexuality exists beyond what you like, what you dislike. There's There's other perspectives on sexuality. So to kind of broaden your mind in that way. And so I do pose this question of like, how would you define sex? And uh, if it's an in-person class, just have them write that little down on, on note cards and turn it in now with everything online. Uh, the past few semesters are just doing this in a discussion board post. And, you know, you can start seeing some themes. And it's a larger section class. So there's about 100 or so students in there. And so you see some themes, like themes, there's like a focus on intercourse or orgasm, definitely genitals, penile vaginal. So there can be some heteronormativity or at least heterocentrism um, in this definition of sex. And so I take all these and all these are valid definitions. So I don't Mm -hmm. shame anybody's definition. It's just like I I pull one random one out and then share it. And then we critique it as a class. It's like, okay, what what is good about this definition and what maybe is is lacking? Um, Because we can always think of those examples like, well, what about this, right? And so if somebody is more heterocentric and says, the definition of sex is penile vaginal intercourse. It's like, okay, what about people without penises? Or what about people without vaginas? Can they still have sex? It's like, oh yeah, well, they they can have sex. It's like, okay, so we have to adopt and change this definition a little bit. And sometimes they get, once they start thinking about that and start thinking about all these different loopholes um, that people still have sex, 
that may go against their kind of rigid definition, then they start broadening it out so much where we have this very vague, abstract kind of definition that's really not defining much at all. And so then we have to kind of like narrow it a bit, right? And the whole purpose of this exercise is to realize like, we don't really have a standard definition. And from a clinical perspective, if I'm asking patients about sex, I have to ask specific behaviors. So if I'm interested in how often, you know, a couple, like say a heterosexual couples engaging in penile vaginal intercourse, I'll ask how often do you engage in penile vaginal intercourse? I won't ask how often do you have sex? Because conversely, if patients come in and say, we haven't had sex in six months, my first question is, okay, how are you defining sex? What, do, what does sex mean for you? Because yeah. a lot of times yeah, yeah. they've been having like oral sex regularly, but mm -hmm. it's one specific behavior that they haven't been engaging in that's distressing that they count as real sex. And that prompted them to, to seek treatment. So I, I, don't, I don't have a definition, even a standard one, again, because it, it depends on when I'm going to be using that term and it's going gonna, it's gonna to vary. Yeah, that's really unsatisfying. It is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, this is what you get for talking to a, a psychology professor. Everything is like, right. ah, it depends. <laughs> it sounds kind of like art or mm -hmm. obscenity, yeah, <laughs> you know, any of the obscenity. things that we say, sure. I know it when I see it. Yeah, yeah, and so another example, so I gave like the clinical example, the research example with this, right? So if, um, and this is a limitation in a lot of sex research because in like questionnaire or survey-based research, when we were just asking participants, when was the last time you had sex? How often do you have sex? We don't know what's going on in the participant's mind when they see that word sex. It may differ from what the researchers are trying to actually measure and to assess. And so I think a better practice for researchers is to ask, well, what specific behavior are you interested in measuring? Is it penile vaginal intercourse or penile anal intercourse? Is it oral sex? And if so, say that. Don't just say sex unless you want to give this kind of disclaimer in your questionnaire saying like when we say or when we ask how often are you having sex with your partner, define sex however you define it. And then as researchers, we're like, okay, this is a subjective definition for our participants for how often they're having sex or how sexually satisfied they are. It's not our definition. And so we just need to make sure that the researchers and the participants are having the same definition of what is being asked and reported. And that's got to be true at the therapeutic level too. That if if you're if you're giving therapy with someone, you've got to calibrate what sex is, what sexual health is for that person, for that person you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. You always start with what they're working with, right? So their definitions. And if they're coming in with problems related to sex, of saying like just low um, low frequency, poor satisfaction, something like that, or you you want to understand how are they defining sex? But then ultimately, or and often a goal is to have them broaden their definition of sex. It's very common for, and I'll, I'll speak to heterosexual couples because it, it really plays out in those dynamics, that penile vaginal intercourse is what quote-unquote real sex is to them. Right? Yes. Everything else is just foreplay. And that name itself suggests that these are the behaviors that come before the real thing, right? And so that includes like genital touching, whether with, with hands or with mouths, uh, but that's not sex per se. That's just behavior. Those are stepping stones to, to get to sex. And so if they are having some problems relating to penile vaginal intercourse, more than likely they shut out all those other behaviors that lead to that because those behaviors do not exist like a la carte, so to speak. Hmm. They exist as foreplay. They are stepping stones to get to the real thing. And if they don't want to engage in the real thing, then they're not going to step on any of those stones leading up to it. Because going back to that original, like that first step, maybe like making out or kissing, kissing is never just kissing for them. Kissing is a cue that, oh, I want to have intercourse. Right. And if intercourse now has some type of sexual dysfunction with it or low satisfaction, they're not going to want to kiss because kissing is not just kissing. Kissing is leading to what they want to avoid. Um, so oh. goal-oriented approach to sex, which is very common, works for a lot of people. And that's why we get into like these little ruts or these little tracks uh, rather. But if we want to change that, we need to redefine what sex is and start defining it based on all those steps is sex and not just this one specific behavior. And then we can realize that all of those specific steps by themselves can lead to sexual satisfaction.
And that's one way to start reworking this definition. And this is what I do with students too, of having them think of like what sex is, is that, well, because I show like a picture of, you know, two people making out and be like, well, is this sex? And a lot of, most people say like, no. But then I ask, can this be sexually satisfying? Can it be sexually pleasurable? Can this behavior be motivated by sexual desire? And they're all like, yeah. And show a photo of like somebody bathing together, uh, engaging in oral sex. All those things still are true, that it can be sexually pleasurable. It can be sexually satisfying. It can be motivated by sexual uh, desire. So aren't those behaviors sex? as well. And so clinically, that can be helpful for, for patients to start thinking about sex much more broadly. And therefore, there are more avenues to sexual pleasure and satisfaction than just one specific behavior. It occurs to me that these narrow ideas about what sex is and defining it like in, in, as a gold-based thing that they really work like belief structures, that mm -hmm. they are belief structures. And uh, one example that I deal with very frequently <laughs> is uh, in men who have sex with men, the idea of tops and bottoms, that right. if you're gay, you must be either a top or a bottom or versatile. And that right. if you're versatile, you're probably a bottom is the, mm -hmm. is the unspoken is the unspoken thing. And then I'm part of a community of people, a community just because we define ourselves this way, of side guys who mm -hmm. uh, don't like anal sex at all. And the people who identify as tops and bottoms can't conceive of it. They can't right. conceive of the idea that a gay man would not identify as a top or a bottom. And mm -hmm. they're completely confused and they're like, well, what do you do then? Right. Um, and it's just, it's so out of the realm for them. So I, I really think it does function like a belief. Yeah, absolutely. And these are, you know, culturally learned uh, beliefs. They aren't coming out of thin air. So it's what gets portrayed and talked about and reinforced. And, you know, for, again, like I was saying, uh, you know, it works for a lot of people, this, this, these very, very narrow definitions, it works in, until it doesn't. And that's when you start seeing some sexual dissatisfaction and dysfunction and, and, and things like that. And that's when we need to start broadening our perspective of what sex is and what it can be. But I think your example is is is, is good uh, to bring in this conversation as well, because it's it's really kind of pitting one specific sexual behavior as like the real sex and everything else is is not. And so for people who aren't uh, who are only engaging in the quote unquote real sex have a very difficult time of understanding the sex lives of people who do not engage in those behaviors <laughs> and they may not even view them as sexually active. I'm sure a lot of people would just view, um, you know, sides as essentially like celibate uh, because they're not having the type of sex that they think is the only actual kind of sex that you can be having. Everything else is essentially just kind of like making out or kind of juvenile uh, stuff. Not preface because it's a little too late for a preface, but to, to kind of <laughs> put a footnote maybe uh, on all this, what I what I say both clinically and in, in an education setting is that it doesn't matter what someone's definition of, of sex is, as long as it's their definition and it's clear and they have, maybe have shared goals with the partner and so on and so forth. But there can be thousands of definitions of sex and they're all correct. It, it doesn't matter. It's just making sure that your definition aligns, if it's partnered sex, aligns with uh, someone else's definition, because that's then therefore going to lead to uh, sexual uh, satisfaction for both parties or all parties. So I was enjoying a little bit of research yesterday on purity rings and uh, what's called God's loophole. And there was, oh, I guess, purity rings sprang up in, in the late 90s um, as a, a ploy for getting uh, kind of pressuring uh, evangelical girls to take a virginity pledge. And then they would get this purity ring as a symbol of their pledge. And a, a whole lot of research came out of this uh, showing that like 88% of uh, people who took the pledge, uh, what was it, the silver ring thing, I think it was mm -hmm. called, that they would break the pledge and that before they had PIV sex, they would be more willing to have oral sex and anal sex. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was referred to as God's loophole. Right. Um, and it just, it seemed like a very handy way to have sex by not defining sex as sex. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And this is the problem when sex becomes prescriptive by someone else's like value system and it's placed on everybody. But like, this is what sex is. This is how you should be having sex. This is what's bad. This is what's good. That may work for that one person, but mm -hmm. you can't make these blanket statements thinking that it's going to apply to everybody because people that it doesn't apply to, which is going to be the majority of people, will start looking for these loopholes. And they can find loopholes and they can do all the mental gymnastics, mental masturbation, uh, if you will, of justifying the behavior and thinking that it's okay, but that it's still bringing up sexual shame, sexual guilt, because yes. they recognize that, yeah, it is a loophole. And like the, the spirit of the purity ring is like completely hands off of any type and not, not, a, not to cater to a sexual desire at all. Um, even though what's being specifically stated is to like avoid penile vaginal intercourse until your wedding night, you can't have that kind of firm boundary and think that you're going to be living like a sexually guilt-free life if you engage in like all these loophole behaviors. So it doesn't stop the behaviors, but it can still certainly be wrapped up in a lot of guilt and shame. So one, one funny, it's funny on some aspects, tragic in others. Um, and a colleague once tell me she was working with a teenage girl, maybe 16, 17 years older or something like that. She was pregnant and she was distressed because, you know, she was a virgin. She had no idea how this, how this could happen. Right. And so talking with this uh, teenage girl a little bit longer, my colleague realized that her definition of virginity did allow still for penile vaginal intercourse, but in order to maintain virginity, ejaculation had to occur outside of the vagina. So they were, her and her boyfriend were just relying on the withdrawal method. And so there was mm -hmm. a oops moment, at least during one instance of, of intercourse between them. And, and obviously that's, that's what led to the pregnancy. And so for this person, virginity still allowed for penile vaginal intercourse, but ejaculation was off limits. And so point of the story is like, the definition of, of virginity or even sex, it, it doesn't matter. In that specific example, I think what matters is just understanding potential consequences of certain behaviors and not using the term, the label virginity as your primary birth control method of recognizing that the withdrawal method does have a pretty significantly high error rate to it. And so you are still at risk of, of pregnancy, despite maintaining your virginity in your mind. Uh, so again, that definition doesn't matter. Just understanding the behaviors that you're engaging in and uh, the, the specific positive and negative consequences that can come from that behavior. just struck by the amount of fear behind not giving kids information about mm -hmm. sex, right. you know, being, being afraid of that. You know, it, it strikes me kind of like putting a, a lid on a pressure cooker, especially if you're dealing with adolescents, right. you know, you know, just say no, uh, is you're going to find a way to express uh, your sexuality if it's, if it's that powerful at that age. Yeah, it, it's very naive. It's very authoritarian to believe that that can be contained to the point of total abstinence. And we're talking abstinence for like, a, you know, if we start preaching this message to like preteens, like 12 year olds, right, we're essentially preaching celibacy for them for the next 10, 15, 20 years. And is that realistic? No, it's not by like any rational person. Uh, even within religious belief systems would recognize that 20 year celibacy for people who do not want to be celibate is just not realistic. And so avoiding education um, is, is obviously not the best approach. Obviously. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the old baseball metaphor, you know, where uh, specific sex acts are assigned bases, you know, hitting, uh, getting to first base with somebody, getting to second base. Um, I, I, I'm not even sure what those mean. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are variations in different cultures, uh, but it, invariably hitting a home run is uh, penis and vagina sexual intercourse. Mm -hmm. So setting that up as a kind of a competition, as a game uh, where the goal, it also really objectifies women uh, just mm -hmm. as kind of a baseline thing. But setting that up at, that you're defining that, that young men especially are defining their manhood, their success or failure uh, by any particular attempt at hitting a home run. 
that right. this is how even if they're taught otherwise um they learn in their in their uh in their circle of friends that this is what means you're an actual man right it reminds me of what i was kind of alluding to earlier of um this goal oriented approach to sex yeah. Since yeah, you have yeah. this end goal, and I, I like to conceptualize this as a kind of like a, uh, a set of stairs, right? A staircase. And that top step is however you're defining sex. That's what sex means is that top step. And that also in this analogy, the baseball analogy, that's the home run. And every step leading up to that is just either the bases, right? Or just these stepping stones to get to like the, the, the real thing. And that becomes, as I alluded to, like it's goal oriented. So it becomes a goal. It becomes a mission. And we see this in the, in the language that uh, like in therapy practices that uh, clients and patients use when they're describing uh, their sexual behavior. And they're saying things like, I didn't get the job done, right? Uh, things like that, that it's like work-related um, that there's a task, that there's performance evaluations mm-hmm. involved and things like that, right? And so that that can easily lead to this conquest uh, belief too of like, nothing matters in my life other than getting to that top step. And for those who are, uh, who have very little consideration for the other people involved, what it takes to get to that top step doesn't really matter, right? The end justifies the means uh, in, in their mind. And so that's where it can be expressed in very, very unhealthy, very unethical ways. It's like, whatever I can do to get to that top step, uh, any type of manipulation, coercion, as long as I'm getting there, get hitting that home run, right? And so that's the conquest kind of belief system uh, mm-hmm. that goes into this. And I like to, to break that up. It's like, there's nothing wrong with any of, there's nothing wrong with that top step. That's perfectly fine. But there's also nothing wrong with any of the steps leading up to that. So what, what, what would happen if we kept the steps or the bases with that analogy, but just mixed them up, broke up the staircase, broke up the baseball diamond, right? And, and so that first base doesn't have to always precede second base. Second base doesn't always have to precede third base. What if somebody had uh, intercourse, either vaginal or anal, before they even like, made out with somebody? Uh, what does that mean for them? Uh, it doesn't mean anything, right? Inherently, it doesn't mean anything. Sex doesn't right. inherently mean anything, right. right? It just means that they engaged in one behavior, they didn't engage in another. One behavior does not have to precede or follow uh, something. And so I think that can really help break up this conquest, kind of drive this like uber masculinity too, of like getting to the home run. When if we value like all the bases as equal and we don't put this emphasis on we have to go through like these hurdles or like go through these different milestones to get to, quote unquote, uh, the real thing, whether that's that top step or the, uh, the home base. Just going back to my idea that this is uh, a belief a belief system mm-hmm. um, and that people base their identities on it. So I, it, it just seems that this goal oriented system of belief is where it, the whole incel identity comes from. That uh, if, if you, if you don't believe in that goal, in that point of kind of that single point of failure or success, that there's no reason to identify as an incel because mm-hmm. you're not, there's nothing to fail at. Right. Right. Well, the, the incel thing is interesting and frustrating. Like incels often fill my mentions with stuff and they're like the internet's pests um, <laughs> because they, they certainly let themselves be known yes. in their uh, woe is me. Because the one thing with incels, like unless we're currently having sex, like in this moment, we're all kind of involuntarily celibate. Um, so it's like, what's that's a amount of time has to, to, has to pass. Same thing. I think about like semen retention, like unless we're currently ejaculating, we're all like at some stage of semen retention. Um, so at, at what point does one start thinking like, okay, I've been involuntarily celibate enough. This makes me an incel. And there's no set amount of time, right? So most people in uh, relationships, right? Marriage or otherwise, um, they're more likely going through periods of involuntarily not having sex. And so the underlying kind of fuel behind the incel is more of this sense of entitlement that I deserve what I want um, and I'm not getting that. And I'm angry about that. Mm -hmm. These people, these women primarily are the ones who are not giving this to me. Uh, I'm pissed off at them and they're going after these guys and these guys are jerks, but they have like certain types of jaw lines. They're really obsessed with like jaw lines. And the, I even saw like um, 
incels being all concerned about their wrist sizes. And that's the reason why no women are, are interested in them. It's like, no one's looking at your wrist size. It's probably you're an asshole. And like, let's just be honest uh, with that. And your ideas of sex are very misogynistic, very conquest driven. And you're just focused on getting this prize to alleviate yourself of this self-imposed title of in, uh, incel. Um, but all of this was self-created. And you're kind of creating your own misery for you. And so back it up, quit being so goal focused on this one activity of like defining who you are and just go masturbate because I consider masturbation sex. And there you go. You're no longer involuntarily celibate. If you, uh, if you touch your own penis, problem solved. Hell yeah. <laughs> I saw that you uh, tweeted about uh, if ejaculating is wasting essential nutrients, then just eat, <laughs> eat your semen, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a problem solver. It's, problem solver. It's simple as so. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, don't get me started on those um, semen retention guys that were filling up my missions there for a couple of weeks. That was just uh -huh. mind boggling uh, their beliefs about the power of semen in your body and how it's somehow providing nutrients um, just sitting there in your in your prostate. Yeah, I, I know. Uh, I know a few people who, uh, I, you know, I go to group masturbation events mm -hmm. and uh, I will invariably encounter someone and I've gotten to be friends with with some of these guys who are their prize of the week is that they have not had an orgasm for a week or a month or two mm -hmm. months and that they're just on a continuous edge. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's fine. Yeah, if they want to do that. Yeah, it's not uh, doing anything to their body. It's not giving them superpowers or anything, but no. they can do whatever they want. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. right. I've had a lot of fun with some of these guys, yeah. but they don't orgasm with me which is mm -hmm. uh, always a little bit of a disappointment. But, you know, <laughs> good thing about group sex is that there's always somebody right. else. Right, right. One thing that we haven't talked about is the role of orgasm within sex, because oftentimes that is that home base. That mm -hmm. is that, that top step, that it includes orgasm and so we say like we get behavioral of what leads to the the orgasm but oftentimes we just assume that the orgasm is part of it yes but that's very common so from like a clinical perspective you'll have couples coming in complaining about their sex life in some way but what the complaint is is actually orgasm focused not even like penile vaginal like intercourse or other type of sexual behavior focused they may still be engaging in a lot of different types of sexual behavior but because they can't have an orgasm then they actually haven't had sex and so approaching that is similar to what we've been talking about this whole time is orgasm in and of itself is a goal and it's part of this goal-oriented trajectory that we get ourselves on yes let's think of different ways to sexual pleasure and even sexual satisfaction that are independent of having an orgasm and usually i try to bring in a little bit of a comparison to like getting a massage uh, there's no climax, so to speak, to getting like an hour long massage at like a Veda or whatever. It's just whenever they will hit the ding um, at that 60 minute mark and then it's over. Does that mean that that wasn't 60 minutes of experiencing pleasure on a physical level? No, it, it felt good. And so sexual behavior in the absence of orgasm can certainly feel good. And if we start accepting it that orgasm is not the goal, that we can also feel satisfied uh, at the end of the, the sexual encounter with or without uh, orgasm. And BDSM is, is a good way to, for BDSM practitioners, they, they get this pretty easily because a lot of times their sexual behavior does not include genitals at all. And it doesn't even include orgasm, but they certainly feel sexually pleased and sexually satisfied at the mm -hmm. end of like a, a BDSM encounter or session. It's also definitely something that uh, people who go for uh, multiple day edging uh, mm -hmm. are also very much focused on. They're focused on prolonged sexual pleasure without orgasm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that edging is, is, a, is a sex therapeutic technique to, to treat. Uh, premature ejaculation. It's just knowing how your body responds and being able to kind of control that sexual response cycle a little bit more to your liking. Is edging what used to be called the stop-start technique? That's essentially what it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're just uh, sex therapists are just talking about how individuals with PE, premature ejaculation, just can be a little bit more in tune with their body. So they start stimulating their penis and they, they stop before the point of orgasm, let that arousal go down a little bit and then resume. And so that's all edging uh, really is. But mm -hmm. in the clinical sense, it's just allowing the, the person to, the, to delay orgasm to, uh, to a time that's, that's more satisfying for them. Sure. 
Sure, sure. You mentioned just in passing that you consider masturbation to be sex. Um, mm -hmm. I also very much do. I always have. And um, the first time I actually saw that, uh, like written in a book that I was reading, was in Sex at Dawn, uh, Christopher yeah. Ryan and his mm -hmm. wife. And um, he was talking about the relative orgasms to pregnancies. Mm -hmm. when he's talking about human beings as uh, the most sexually active apes, mm -hmm. that we have more orgasms per pregnancy than any other, any other ape. Right. And he just mentions it's because of masturbation, because we're having so much masturbation. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have looked to quantify that. And it just seems that masturbation is probably the most prevalent sexual activity of the species. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd imagine. I don't know the numbers for that, but just intuitively, I would, I would think that would be accurate. Yeah. So my question is, is that just a given uh, or is there actual is there any quantification of that? Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. I, I don't know if anybody has, has tried to quantitatively study that even on a, just a sample of the population. Um, but I've, I've I, looked. I, I, I can't find anything. OK, yeah, I'm not I'm not aware of it. I, I haven't actively looked for that. But yeah, I mean, I would assume, especially given the, the age of onset of masturbation versus partnered sexual behavior, periods of time in your life in which you do not have a, a partner, um, whether a committed partner or just an available casual partner versus time alone. And so, I mean, the numbers would just have to be like a, a ridiculous ratio in, in favor of masturbation over partnered sexual behavior as the most frequently type of uh, orgasms that our species is having. That makes sense. Yeah. And that's the thing with like going back to like the incels too. Because they do, they drive me a little bonkers. Um, their <laughs> their ideology, because it's again, it's so rooted in misogyny and the fact that they can't see that. Because if they're so concerned about sexual behavior, it, it, it is. I mean, the remedy is just just masturbate, right? If you have blue balls, the, the, the remedy is masturbate. You have sexual desire. The remedy is masturbate. That's always available to you. And so what is it that they're actually craving for partnered sexual behavior? Because it's not an orgasm, right? They may say it's, it's something to alleviate their sexual desire. They're mm -hmm. horny. They want to have sex. They want to come, whatever. It's like, well, you can do all that yourself, right? So what is it actually, what need is partner sex meeting in your life? And this is true for yeah. everybody, incel or not, right? Because that's why partner sex meets so many different needs that masturbation can't, but it's not that physiological release of sexual desire that's actually being met that, that can be, but there's no difference between masturbation and partnered sex uh, with that. So is it a sense of validation that I'm attractive enough that somebody would want to have sex with me? And that's actually what's motivating this, the sexual uh, drop for that person. And so that, that's a difficult conversation to have with people of uh, recognizing that it's not about the sex that you're actually craving, because that can always be alleviated or taken care of yourself. Partnered sex has a lot of other variables that are meeting a lot of other needs. Most mm -hmm. of them are not sexual in nature. Is there anything else about how we define sex that you'd like to mention? I think the, the take home message is define it in a way that leads to the greatest number of avenues to sexual pleasure and sexual satisfaction for you. And it's, it's fine whatever definition you have, but to think maybe a little bit broader than, than what your current definition is and to see how that may change how you perceive sexual pleasure and sexual satisfaction. If someone's having trouble doing that, trouble expanding <laughs> their ideas and that, that they just keep kind of bumping up against a ceiling of dissatisfaction, mm -hmm. um, what are some of their options? But what I think is helpful sometimes is one when there's resistance of thinking about sex beyond just one specific behavior mm -hmm. of to think of your partner, uh, if they have a current partner, maybe a past partner, engaging in a particular type of behavior that you wouldn't define as sex. And if they're monogamous, how comfortable are you with your partner engaging in that behavior with somebody else? Right. Um, and so this can start bringing up, if, again, it's their monogamous, um, some feelings of like jealousy or insecurity that they're right. engaging in particular behavior that has normally been off limits uh, within their relationship because of monogamous boundaries that are in place. Um, but why? It's not sex, according to you. So why can't they like have a 20 minute makeout session uh, with a coworker? Um, it's not sex, according to your definition. And so that can start breaking it up and be like, OK, what it is, what is it about making out that is intimate? 
And can we maybe start equating intimacy with sexual behavior and that the two can be intertwined for at least for this person's definition. And the other thing to use the uh, making out as a good example too, and this is helpful for, for couples who are having a hard time breaking up that staircase or breaking up the baseball diamond because they're just so focused on that last step of like what it constitutes quote unquote real sex is to, to think back when they in the early sexual development, whether that was, you know, teenage years or maybe even before of like, what was like super sexually satisfying or exciting and and pleasurable for you to do like the first time. Right. And so a lot of times, you know, making out with somebody is that first step of like partnered sexual uh, behavior, however old you are when that first happened. Mm -hmm. And to think of that first encounter of just making out and that you made out maybe like 10, 20, 30 minutes. um, And it was like mind blowing. And it didn't go anywhere. That was the behavior in and of itself. And it was awesome. And you you left that just feeling like on cloud nine and and so satisfied and and aroused and excited about that behavior. Now, fast forward, you know, 30 years and you have this couple who's been together for a couple of decades. And I asked them, well, when was the last time you two just had like this hardcore makeout session, like on the couch for like 20 minutes? And that's all you did. And they laugh because they haven't done that since they probably first met, right? Mm-hmm. And so then you can start exploring, well, why has that been avoided, right? And because it, it has now just been put in this assembly line of sexual behavior and it yes. just leads to like this other behavior. But that doesn't mean that that behavior, the making out, is not sexually pleasurable or satisfying and can just be engaged in by itself. And so having them kind of think back and be, you know, have empathy for a younger self, a younger version of them when some of these quote unquote non-sexual behaviors were like the pinnacle of their sex life and to have them start tapping into that because certainly making out has not become like less pleasurable over time we just kind of diverted our focus to some other behaviors that we uh, have labeled as the real thing um kind of at the expense of finding that pleasure that exists in the the non-real things Let's talk about sexual health. So it, it seems to me that uh, the term sexual health means different things depending on who's using it, whether they're, you know, uh, a medical doctor or, or, or a sex therapist or a public health worker, um, uh, a parent, a teacher, a uh, quote unquote faith leader, a psychologist, somebody or, or, you know, somebody selling supplements or sex toys. Right. You know, right. Uh, the whole idea of what sexual health is. How do you use the term sexual health? I try to use it as broadly as possible as like an okay. umbrella term of approaching health of all facets of our life um, and to deviate it from more of a traditional like older school definition that's just focused on STI or pregnancy prevention. Yes. Those were the, the original, at least medicalized definitions of sexual health. And that those still can persist a little bit. But I would say at least over the last 20 years, even within especially the psychological community and maybe in the medical community, there's been this broadening out of what actually goes into being a sexually healthy individual. And that definitely goes beyond STI status. And that doesn't mean like you can't be sexually healthy and not have an STI. I mean, those two aren't mutually you know, exclusive. You can have an STI and still be a sexually healthy individual. Sure. Right? And so there's not this black and white kind of dichotomous thinking. But to kind of incorporate other aspects into it, so you can focus on other aspects of like physical health or psychological health of sexual functioning. You can talk uh, about the absence of sexual coercion and manipulation uh, within uh, sexually relating to uh, to one another. We can make sure that someone's religiosity or spirituality is at least congruent with their sexual behavior. You don't need religion or spiritual spirituality to be sexually healthy, mm-hmm. but you should certainly have congruence between religious values and sexual values because without that congruence, that's where a lot of distress uh, comes in and some self-pathologizing. Calling yourself a sex addict usually is the 
the product of having this not alignment between religious values and, and sexual behavior. Um, so just a couple of, of examples there of how we can broaden this conceptualization of what we mean by, by sexual health. It's certainly beyond physical health. Well, when you talk about the whole idea of, of, uh, of sex addiction, yeah. of self-diagnosing as a sex addict, it's mm -hmm. kind of like saying, I am sexually unhealthy, um, mm -hmm. that this, this part of me is an unhealthy thing. But right. uh, I'm not sure how, how you would do that, except to say someone is or is not sexually healthy. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, and that, that's a good point that I haven't really thought of much until this conversation just now with you kind of mentioning that as an example. I don't think I would like ever label somebody as like sexually unhealthy uh, um, as a broad term, right? Because mm -hmm. that is so broad. Because like I was saying earlier, you can have an STI and I would can still consider you sexually healthy uh, under certain circumstances if you're aware of it, if you're being proactive, if you're communicating with partners about right. risk uh, levels and stuff like that. That's all sexually healthy, despite having a, a diagnosis of, of something. Uh, like an STI. So I would never like have a blanket statement of this person is sexually unhealthy. I would focus more on the specific behavior that is part of someone's overall sexual health and be like, maybe this piece is not the healthiest. How can we kind of turn this into more of a healthy part of your life? And so with uh, the quote unquote sex addict, what's typically unhealthy is there are several things, a couple of them being unrealistic expectations of what sex uh, should be, because uh, usually it's this pretty um, other prescribed, usually like religiously prescribed idea of what you can and can't do sexually. Mm -hmm. And you're not adhering to that, even though you want to, because yeah. you are an adherent of that faith that is prescribing this. And so when you can't live up to that often unrealistic uh, expectation of your sexual behavior, that's when you start feeling distressed and you feel like you're out of control, i.e. an addict. And right. from another perspective, it's like, no, someone's engaging in the, those exact same behaviors with the exact same frequency and they have zero distress about it. It's not interfering with their life at all. They're not a sex addict. So what's the difference? The difference is that perception of I'm not living up to whatever this ethical system is that I want to be living in or that has been prescribed to me. And so that's the unhealthy piece. It's actually not the sex itself. It's this mismatch between sexual values and re oftentimes religious values that's sure. creating the distress. Recently, I was I had a doctor visit and I was looking at the notes from the visit and mm -hmm. uh, and I kind of made a joke of this. I put it I posted it on Facebook with everything blurred out except the line. Paul is a very pleasant 62 year old male. And and, uh, and in another place, uh, I was described as a pleasant male. And <laughs> and I thought, OK, let it be known that <laughs> I am a pleasant person. I'm a pleasant male. And um, one of my very good friends is a, is a medical educator. And he said, well, this is actually part of the semantics that is used in particularly in medical notes, that mm -hmm. it's important to use the right adjectives mm -hmm. um, that you're not going to use and that it's mostly uh, a proscription against using negative terms. Right. Mm -hmm. About not saying this person is unpleasant, but <laughs> right. uh, and in some cases you do want to mention that they are below belligerent or aggressive, uh, mm -hmm. so mainly so that they won't be prescribed opiates. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, mm -hmm. I imagine that there are good reasons to not describe someone, especially officially or in notes, as sexually unhealthy. Yeah, for sure. Because for me, as a both as a clinician, a researcher, and even as an, an educator, that term is meaningless. Yeah. Right. It's as meaningless yeah. as someone saying that they're a sex addict. I have no idea what that means uh, for them, like a way to actually quantify what that means. That right. For me, that term does not automatically bring into my mind certain behaviors um, or anything, anything like that. It's, it's meaningless. So, yeah, labeling somebody as this is a sexually unhealthy 62 year old male is like, I have no idea what the hell you're talking about, other than you're just unnecessarily stigmatizing and pathologizing somebody with a very vague clinical language that's going to do more harm than good because it's not guiding any kind of treatment, even if there is a specific behavior that is actually unhealthy. Right. So it occurred to me that the, the term sexual health professional, um, I, I kind of think of you as a sexual health professional. Mm -hmm. You know, it's your it's you, you've you've chosen this. But uh, I I also have friends who are sex workers who I would consider sexual health professionals. 
Sure. Is there a space for, uh, I know we're not quite there yet as a culture, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, thinking of sex workers as sexual health professionals? Yeah, I mean, I do. I mean, I, I, I broaden the idea of sexual health professionals you know, pretty, pretty broadly, you mm -hmm. know, it, it, it casts a wide net and it's, it's not just people, um, you know, providing psychotherapy services, medical interventions uh, for disease or infections, things like that. Um, there are a lot of uh, affiliates uh, that would go under that umbrella of sexual health professionals. Sure. And I would certainly uh, put sex workers under that because the, what's, what's the function of their, of their job? What role um, uh, do they serve? What needs are they meeting? That certainly would fall under uh, a broad definition of sexual health and can fit into someone's personal definition of what it means to be a sexually healthy uh, individual. Sure. Well, I was just interviewing uh, Brian McNaught, who's uh, uh, he's been a gay activist for 50, 60 years now. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about the work that he's done uh, working with elder communities of gay people mm -hmm. and encountering people who just really needed to be touched, to, to experience affection mm -hmm. and physical touch, um, who, who wanted to make out with somebody uh, in their 80s, 90s, and um, how he tried to find a way to help refer them to sex workers. Mm -hmm. And he could not, and this guy is basically a conservative Catholic, mm -hmm. um, but he could not, he could not imagine why it was so difficult to get that mm -hmm. happening, that it mm -hmm. was such an obvious need that right. uh, if you could, and he said that you, you should, there should be a Yelp uh, for, for sex workers so mm -hmm. that uh, gay people can, you know, especially elder communities, can have this experience, can have right. uh, a sexual experience with somebody. No, I, I agree with that. And like, and I'm not naive enough to believe that what we're talking about isn't radical. Um, it is, it, it I is. believe it shouldn't be. And I, I don't think it is for my own personal, you know, view of the world as it relates to sexuality. It's certainly not radical in my own beliefs, but understanding its position within the culture at large, it is yes. certainly a radical belief. And so even when I was saying that, yeah, sex workers would fall under my definition of sexual health professionals, having the Minnesota Board of Psychology see it that way and not be upset if there was ever a board complaint because they found out a psychologist was referring a client to a sex worker, that would be a hard case to argue in favor of the psychologist just because of the sex work stigma and yes. negative biases and attitudes towards sex workers that likely any type of administrative or authority kind of board uh, would have. And so I think we're a ways away from it being quote unquote legitimized yeah. into other uh, sexual health professions that are quote unquote legitimized by culture, like psychologists, therapists, uh, medical professionals, things like that. Yeah. But there's no reason why they, they shouldn't be. The only reason why they're not is because of these very archaic uh, biases against sex work and sex workers. So like sex, I imagine that sex, sexual health is one of those things that is like art or other things that uh, if you if you experience it and you you believe that about yourself, I feel sexual healthy, sexually healthy, then it is. Right. I mean, again, you're talking with a, a psychology professor and a, and a psychologist. We live in this kind of subjective reality, I think much more so than, than other professions. Sure. But it is, it, it is very person-centric of, yeah, are you personally distressed by something? Or is mm -hmm. this interfering with your life in some way? And if you have no to both of those, you know, more than likely you're not meeting diagnostic criteria for most of the mental disorders that exist. Right. There's only a few, like primarily like the personality disorders in which someone may not be distressed by something or may they may not feel like it's interfering with their life but they're still kind of leaving this like wake of destruction but that's certainly the exception to uh, the norm of the, the bulk of mental disorders that are out there they would require that subjective reporting of this is distressing to me or this is interfering in my life in some way and in the absence of that then yeah that person is never going to come in contact with a sexual health professional because everything's fine in their life sure well, let's think about physical uh, physical health, uh, just mm -hmm. like fitness, physical fitness. Yeah. Um, people who pursue fitness are pursuing health 
as something that they want to be a present part of their life all the time. It's mm-hmm. not just a matter of, oh, I feel healthy um, so I can keep doing what I'm doing. It's a matter mm-hmm. of uh, health is a priority for me, so I'm going to exercise. I'm going to eat right, et cetera, et cetera. Um, right. So why not have that kind of uh, an approach to sexual health as well, to uh, think about one's life as if, if, if that's a priority for someone to be sexually yeah. uh, happy and joyful, that they actually do things to make that a reality in their life and that it's an ongoing journey. Yeah, I I think you said it right with the word priority, right? And and that's what we all have to decide of like, how much do we want to prioritize sex and however we're defining that, right? And there's no right or wrong answer to that. For some, sex is like their top priority in life. Others, it's like they could take it or leave it. So it's like in the back of the the list of of, of priorities uh, that's going on. And again, there's no right or wrong for that. But wherever sex does get prioritized, then you have to figure out, okay, what are the behaviors that I need to be engaging in in order to prioritize sex in the way that I want it to be prioritized? And that may have to be like some shuffling around of other priorities that you have since sex is a a physical uh, behavior. Mm -hmm. There may be some things that we have to engage in in order to ensure that we are still physically able to engage in the type of sex that we want uh, to be having. So like when you mentioned exercise and the focus of health or like diet and things like that, It's like, I would even argue uh, to break it down more on a functional level, right? So we all get the messages of like, eat right and stay active. It's like, well, for what purpose? What are we hoping? Stay healthy? It's like, well, that's kind of a vague term. So specifically, what are we wanting to do? So if the focus is on, oh, I want to make sure that I have good erectile functioning as I age, it's like, well, erectile functioning requires a lot of different physical factors, vascular functioning being one. So what can I do to improve my vascular health, right? And so we narrow it down from sexual health to more specific vascular health and like, okay, maybe I need to watch my cholesterol levels, uh, make sure I'm focused on cardio, anything that would help uh, my vascular system that therefore would help my erectile functioning because that's what's important for me yes. uh, to where I have sex prioritized. Yeah. Maybe stop drinking sugar colas and etc. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if that's, yeah, if, you, if you're in a particular behavior as being detrimental to something that you're prioritizing, then yeah, that's where kind of more health psychology comes into play of like, okay, how can we engage in certain healthier behaviors that will allow us to uh, meet some type of goal or objective uh, that we have. Um, But if like sugary sodas are not interfering with your life, or even if they do cause a detriment to some aspects of your health, but Mm -hmm. not health aspects that you have really valued or prioritized, then the likelihood that that person is going to be motivated to change is going to be low uh, because it's not going to be a big deal for them. Whereas you see like, this is a good example for like smokers, right? So smokers, we know that smoking has a lot of different negative health effects yes. uh, on people. And so somebody could be experiencing some pretty significant uh, negative health effects from, from smoking, maybe relating to their breathing, uh, their lungs, but it hasn't been enough to change their behavior or get them to cut down or, or to quit smoking. It's not until it affected their uh, erectile abilities. And then it's like, holy shit, I need to, to like stop, right? Because right. it finally started affecting the blood vessels in their penis uh, by constricting them too much because the, the long-term nicotine use and be like, okay, now I see that I, I value my erectile health and I see smoking as a contributing factor to poor erectile health. And that's going to be the motivating factor. Who cares what it was doing to my lungs up to this point once it started affecting <laughs> penis, um, then that's going to prompt behavioral change. And it can be the opposite for people it can yeah. like create, can create ED for somebody. And that's not a big deal. But once they start coughing a lot, then it's like, oh, shit, I need to do something. So it's whatever we prioritize in life and the behaviors that we're engaging in that's either making that better or worse for us. Yeah, exactly. Two questions I always ask are about uh, where their inspiration comes from, you know, who their mm-hmm. heroes are, and uh, if there's anything that they recommend right now. Uh, like, do they recommend a book or uh, a movie or something? Um, well, for me, like just personally, and I'm just kind of being selfish here, I, I always find inspiration more from the creative worlds, music, comedy, mm-hmm. art. Um, so 
that's where I get my inspiration for like sex education. Yeah. And so when I'm like doing any type of like sex education kind of writing, I'm not reading other sex ed books or sexual health books. I'm listening to music. I'm watching comedy specials. You know, I'm looking at art. That's what inspires me to kind of get creative with my education. So what's um, on high rotation for you right now? I've been listening a lot to uh, Nine Inch Nails is always on high rotation, but yeah. a more recent industrial metal band out of L.A. is Three Teeth. Um, three Teeth? You, three Teeth, yeah. If, if you like Nine Inch Nails, Rammstein, that's when I first saw them. They opened for Rammstein. I never heard of them before. Um, they opened for a Rammstein concert, I think 2017 or something in Chicago when I saw them there. Wow. And yeah, just some great industrial like heavy heavy music um so um they're really cool to listen to if you like industrial music again if you like nine inch nails rammstein check out three teeth i recommend them um comedy wise um the first thing that came to mind is actually an older episode of uh, i think i mentioned this last time of the stern show howard stern yes yes Um, Uh uh-huh It was maybe a week or two ago. It was was a repeat. They weren't live that week. Um, It was an older interview with Chris Rock and listening to Chris Rock just talk about his, his comedic process and his, the the up and coming story uh, of him was just like super inspiring. And I mean, obviously he's a super funny guy, Um, but just listening to that, um, that interview wasn't too old. They were, they were doing it over uh, zoom. So it was like within the past year of the pandemic. Yeah. That's uh, not too old. No, uh, but it wasn't live um, a couple of weeks ago. But yeah, just listening to Chris Rock talk about his life and his approach to comedy, it just kind of creates like this supercharged burst of inspiration for me to to do well at my job. I'm not a comedian and, you know, I'm not a musician, but kind of my area within sex ed, this is kind of where I get my uh, inspiration and, and motivation from. Fantastic. Well, it's been great having you on again. Always a pleasure. I hope you will do it again. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Become one of my regulars. <laughs> sure. I love that. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Of course, Paul. I want to thank Dr. Eric Sprankel for gracing my Zoom room with his presence once again. Links to everything we talked about are in the show notes. If you've had personal experience with Jackoff Clubs and would like to be interviewed for the podcast, let's talk. I'm also looking for suggestions for guests who are working in the field of human sexuality, be they educators, therapists, researchers, community organizers, sex workers, or advocates for sex workers, or any number of folks with a fresh take on pleasure. Share your thoughts. I'm looking for new interviews now and would love to meet some new folks. Send your ideas, suggestions, and feedback to me at podcast at theheartofjacks.com. I'm on Twitter at theheartofjacks, or call 206-580-3120. The Heart of Jacks podcast. Written and produced by me and supported by listeners like you, patrons through Patreon. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com slash theheartofjacks. Theme music is Carousel of Fame by Jake Bradford Sharp. Distribution by Simplecast at simplecast.com. Until next time, that is the Heart of Jack's podcast. I'm Paul Rosenberg. <laughs>